Well, if you'll bear with me when I make this statement, I'm going to explain it. Socialism is cool again. Not so much in Venezuela, but in many segments of American voters. Socialism is, is cool again, which is really kind of weird, which is really kind of odd if you have any memory at all of, of, of civics and what you studied in, in school and in history. Uh, because it wasn't that long ago that to accuse someone of being a socialist was meant as an insult. And now, not so much, which is really rather odd uh, when, when you take a step back, not just from an historical standpoint, but just thinking in terms of what socialism in and of itself by definition is. It is the centralization, it is the consolidation of goods and supply and power, which inevitably leads to corruption. That's centralization. That centralization of goods and power inevitably leads to corruption. Now, there's certainly differences between a socialistic government and a monarchy, but what's interesting is when you think about the end result, you often end up with the same thing, the centralization of goods and power and therein corruption. And as Luke said, and we did not sync this up uh, earlier, but as he alluded to earlier in the service, we Americans don't do so well living under a monarchy. So it's kind of interesting that we're so much conversations going in the direction of talking about the centralization of so much today. Um, you know, just, just think back, to ask our friends across the pond uh, about that little uh, spat that took place during the, the, the reign of King George III. Um, we don't do too well living under the reign and the rule of, of a king. Kings are not elected. They have no term limits. They don't need to campaign. Usually their subjects have little to no say in whether or not they get to be king. They just are. They have a throne. And that's it. And that's it. And it's little wonder that we struggle as a people with this concept of Jesus as king, especially when you add this to the, to, the, to, this, to the formula, that his throne is a universal, his reign, his rule is a universal one. His reign and rule is an eternal one. So it goes out as far as you can see and as wide as the east is from the west. Nothing is excluded and it goes on forever. That is his reign and rule, his sovereignty is such as, that is the king. That's the kind of king we're talking about. And we don't do very well living under any king, much less one whose rule is that comprehensive. There's something on the one hand appealing about that, that we are drawn towards, and yet at the same time, there's something rather repulsive about that that we would be governed by a king like Jesus. There's a war going on in our hearts. You've got a Bible. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We are pressing on in this series through the gospel of Matthew, and we are coming up on a, a passage that is oftentimes referred to as the, the triumphal entry uh, taking place and what we sometimes refer to as 
Palm Sunday. Now, I know in the church calendar, we're a little early there. But this is just where we are in Matthew's study. So we'll be talking about Jesus as the King and Palm Sunday again in a few weeks. But we're here in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, and we need to really pay careful heed to what we see here. So if you have your Bible, turn there, read along silently with me. This is the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethlehem to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together for just a moment here. Lord Jesus, as the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 1, oh, that we, that we would be like trees planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season, leaves that do not wither, and all that we do, there being a, a prospering. And we cannot, we surely cannot in any way bear any fruit of all, at all. We surely cannot Uh, experience any fulfillment in this life and satisfaction in our days on this earth. If there is a king and we are living in rebellion and resisting his rule, those two things cannot go hand in hand. Fulfillment and resistance. We ask that you would help us to see how great and grand is your reign. How rich and how freeing it can be to bend our knee, the knees that were meant to be bent in this way. Faces lifted up to you. Hands empty, reaching up high, ready to receive whatever you would bestow upon us. Hearts hungry, this morning, at this moment, for what you would reveal to us. Lives prepared, shaped, open, malleable, soft to your touch, ready to go and do and be whatever, whatever you would have us to go and be and do. We ask you to help us to hear you speaking. Amen. 
It was, according to many historians, March 29, 33 AD. That's the date. The pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for Passover and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are filled with expectation that day, that Sunday, as Jesus and his disciples are there on the Mount of Olives, there across, just east across the Kidron Valley from the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus, with his disciples, he comes riding on this donkey, this beast of burden, down that Mount of Olives, that, that steep, steep hill, coming down the mount, across the Kidron Valley, up into the city, and he does so with great intentionality. I don't know if you know this. This is the only time you read in the Gospels of Jesus riding anything. All other times, he's walking. There is great intentionality with what he is doing here. He is publicly declaring to that expectant crowd, I am your king. Very intentional, very purposeful. He is throwing down the gauntlet. He is coming in just as Solomon had centuries before, same way, into the same city before he was made king. The people, they know this. They, they, they know this. They are responding. Oh, are they responding? He is declaring they are receiving. They are shouting publicly, responding to what he is saying, in essence saying, yes, Jesus, you are our king. And oh, by the way, you know what that means? Caesar isn't. Uh-oh. Jesus is king. And not, and not Caesar. No wonder the city's shaken, right? Or stirred up, depending on the translation that, that you have. No wonder. We, you, it is impossible to exaggerate the political and religious volatility. Jesus has put dry kindling, a mound of it, right in front of everyone and lit the lighter. It just needs a Throw it on there. This is astounding what's going on. Really, only one of two things can now happen. I've come to a fork in the road. One of two things can happen. Either the Romans and the current religious establishment are going to be overthrown, or he's going to be brutally killed. There's really no third thing here. He has come to the point of no return. There is absolutely no going back. Does this get your attention? Jesus has come and thrown his cards down on the table, making it abundantly clear who he is. For any who will have eyes to see and ears to hear, he is making it abundantly clear who he is. The king has come. The king has come. We need to learn what it means to live under his reign. He is the king. He has come. We need to learn what it means to live under his reign. Now, what would that 
look like? And how do we learn something of that from this, this passage? A lot of different directions you could go with this. We're going to just look over the next few minutes at three components, three key components, three key elements of this passage that help us to understand what it means to live under the reign of King Jesus. Those three elements, if they're in your outline, simply being the donkey, what's going on there, the prophecy, and then the crowds, specifically the response of the crowds. So those three things, helping us to understand, grapple better, learn what it means to live under the reign of Jesus, the donkey, the, the prophecy, and the crowds. So these things, uh, in turn, first the donkey. The donkey, of course, in and of himself does not teach us anything, but it's, it's the thing surrounding this beast of burden and, and the, his presence there, the, the two, the, the mother and, and the cult. So let's look at the nature of Jesus' reign. We see something of that, the, that verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read it again. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. What's going on here? First of all, we see Jesus' right to reign. We see from, from the outset, Jesus' right to reign. How does he end up riding on this donkey? Think about it. How does he end up riding on this donkey? Just like so many royal figures in the ancient world, what he has done is impressed that donkey into service, saying, you're mine. Well, let's go. Now, how can you do that unless... It's ultimately his. That donkey, Jesus likely has never seen this donkey before, or the donkey Jesus. But that donkey is ultimately Jesus's, as is everything else in this world, and every person in this room is ultimately his. And so he has every right to impress that donkey into service. He has the right to rule because he is the king. And you get a hint of that even further in his rationale and the explanation that he gives to the disciples and the response that he says, if anybody asks, here's what you just are to say. What is that response? There in verse 3, you see it. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. How has he just described himself? He is the sovereign one. Understand, whatever else you have heard, the early church did not invent Jesus' divinity. They bore witness to it. It's a very important distinction. The early church did not invent Jesus' divinity and sovereignty and kingship. They observed it, heard it, bore witness to it. It's what you see here. The Lord needs it. This one who has impressed this donkey into service. He has every right to reign, this king. It's one of the things that we see here. Something else that we see here is the nature of his reign, the type of reign. Now, what I mean by that is sim simply this, is that, again, in the ancient world, when a king came entering a, a, a city, the fate of the city was signified by the kind of mount he rode. Understand? Put another way, just reverse the sentence. The kind of mount that the king rode as he's entering the city was a sign of what awaited what was coming to that city. How does Jesus come into this city? He does not come on a war horse. 
He does not come on a, on a charger, on a stallion. He does not come in conquest or in judgment. What does he come on? A donkey. A donkey. He comes. This is the prince of peace. That's why he comes. That's the nature of his reign. He comes to bring peace, to bring shalom, to bring healing, to bring renewal, to bring restoration. That's who this king is, and that's what his reign is ultimately about. The restoration of shalom, the, the return, the renewal of the way things are meant to be. The donkey, the things surrounding the donkey, again, tell us so much about Jesus' reign and rule. His right to rule and the type, what it's for, what it's about, what his kingdom is, is about. Put it this way, a man's ride tells you a lot about the man himself. Right? Okay. In college, I drove a 1965 Ford Mustang. You should be envious. Just saying. Now, this car basically was what I wanted to be. Fast, powerful, cool, and different. Let's fast forward a few years later. We're starting a family. Now what am I driving? Mustangs in a, is long gone. I'm now driving a very used station wagon and a series of minivans filled and overflowing with crayons and crumbs. You can tell a lot about a guy by the, what he, his ride, right? And even still today, still today, my Forester is a very practical vehicle with lots of dog hair in the back. You can tell a lot about a man by his ride, and it's no different than with Jesus and this donkey. We learn much of the nature of his rule, his right to rule, and the fact that he comes in peace as the prince of peace. And he, friends, is the only hope that we have of peace. The only hope that we have at all. Why does he come? Why does he come in peace? Because of our need of peace. Because of the reality of a fall, a, a, a tragic event in time and space and in history, such that we now live in a world that is typified by disease and emptiness and brokenness and poverty and injustice and racism. That's the world in which we live. And he has come to bring that renewal, that restoration, that peace, that shalom that our hearts are made for, but we are not going to find it anywhere and in anything else. Though so many other things make appeals and promises, we might even promise it ourselves that we just by our own effort and strength and willpower can bring about that peace and that renewal and that restoration that we long for, and it's a lie. He alone is this prince of peace. He alone, all others are but pretenders. We ourselves are pretenders if we think we can provide it for ourselves. Jesus has come as the, as the king. He is the king. Oh, that we would learn what it means to live under his reign. That's the first thing. The things surrounding uh, the donkey, the donkey, and, and the colt as Jesus comes down that hill and into the city. Okay, what else do we have going on here? There's a prophecy, a very ancient prophecy that Jesus fulfills, and that's worth paying attention to as well. Verses 4 and 5, let's look at that. This took place 
to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Here Matthew is cluing us in as to what's actually going on. And what we come to understand and that Jesus is the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy, we see there is weighty significance as to what's happening in this moment. In this moment, as Jesus is coming down that hill and entering the city on that donkey, this is something that was long awaited, long, long awaited. This is the one that had been foretold by Zechariah, uh, this messianic figure, uh, this beautiful combination of utter meekness and utter majesty at the same time come to us down through the line of David. That's who Zechariah is speaking of here. And what we're seeing is Matthew's cluing us into the fact that that one long awaited has come. The wait is over. There he is. There he is. There he is riding on that donkey right in our midst, right in our city. There he is. He has come. The long-awaited one has come, and this was greatly anticipated. And by that, I mean so much planning, so much um, preparation had gone into this. This was not something that just that the Lord threw together on the fly, on a whim, willy-nilly. Oh, I, I, we'll just get this donkey. No, I mean, just Zechariah's prophecy alone, Zechariah's ministry scholars project out, believe it, it starts roughly around 520 B.C., so we're talking five centuries plus before the events themselves are happening. Zechariah is beginning his ministry there immediately or soon thereafter, the, the, uh, the end of the tragic period in Israel's history of the Babylonian captivity. And there he is writing it, projecting out what it was, who it was that was to come. So long ago and so much had happened in the years since, empires Empires had risen and fallen, the Persian Empire, the Greeks, now the Romans. And then that terrible silence, 400 years between Malachi and the arrival of John the Baptist, so long ago and so much has happened. And then, and then as Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, in the fullness of time, meaning history was pregnant, In the fullness of time, God sent his son. When he had prepared everything, when, when history had been brought to fulfillment, when the, the, the state of nations and the flow of events and of persons and, and, and cultures and individuals had all been moved and aligned perfectly, Jesus comes. That one on that donkey comes down that hill. This is how, this is how the prophecy of Zechariah can be fulfilled. This is how we can speak of this. This moment, as Matthew is recording for us, is so significant, so, so weighty. Put it another way, what we see here is that God leaves nothing to chance. Nothing to chance. No detail overlooked. Look, we do well and would do well to, to do this more, to admire people who have control, have self-control, control, control of, of themselves. 
And just as an aside, our leaders, both sides of the aisle, would do better to demonstrate something more of that for us. We know that. We admire people who are in control of themselves. Jesus certainly is, but oh, my friends, it is so much more. Do you see he is controlling not just of himself and his emotions and his response to the chaos around him, but he is in, response, he is in control of the events themselves around him. He's not just in control of himself. He's in control and has his hand not just on, but over everything. Everything. He's not just... Uh, in control of his adrenaline, but he is dictating the results of all things. He is not just acting wisely in, in response to what's going on, but he is dictating outcomes. He is, is not just able to respond wisely to what he sees happening or anticipates happening, but oh my goodness, he drives and determines and governs all that happens. This is the king who leaves nothing, absolutely nothing to chance. And this, again, is how and why this prophecy can be fulfilled as it is, this 500-year-old prophecy, and that's just one of so many we could speak of. This is one. This is how and why that that could be accomplished in that moment as Jesus is coming down that hill. Now, as we think about that, His preserving and governing power of all his creatures and all their actions, including us, that is a balm, a salve, a medicine to the worry and anxiety of our hearts. If we'll really hear this and think it through, at 3 a.m. when you wake up, and your imagination is running wild and not with creativity, but with anxiety. Jesus' reign, his rule, the fact that he governs and preserves all creatures and all their actions, including you and everything going on in your life and my life and the people's lives that you care for, and nothing is exempted there is no blind spot, you know, as he's going down the road and he has to look over his shoulder. That doesn't exist with Jesus. There's no, nothing escapes his purview, his, his sight, his hand, his control. So in that 3 a.m. moment, and you find yourself asking, running down the road, these, these paths, such as, what if I fail? What if I botch that assignment? What if I fail that class? What if I don't get that job? What do they really think of me? Why did he or she say that? Why did they put it that way? Why does the doctor want to see me tomorrow? I'm scared what I'm seeing going on with my kids, and I don't know what to do. Thinking just a few days in the future, or a few weeks, or a few months, or a few years, will I have enough? Will I be enough? Am I enough? These are great questions, but there's one answer, and it's the king, and his truly, in the deepest sense, good rule, good rule over all of that. And nothing, nothing, nothing left out. The king has come. 
Jesus is this king. He has come. Oh, that we would learn to live under his reign. Last thing. Hardly the least, but we'll just, well, it's three points. The crowds. The crowds and their response. It's not just the donkey. It's not just this prophecy, but the crowds. This is well worth thinking through as well. Um, Verses 6 through 11. There's layers here in what's going on. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What we see going on here are differing ideas, competing goals, and a conflict of agendas. That may not be apparent on the surface, but that's really what's happening despite surface appearances. Now, yes, what what we see from the start What's immediately apparent is this joyful acclamation of the crowds, of the people, of of Jesus. And in many respects, they are right to do so, absolutely right to do so and respond in the way that they are. They throw their cloaks down upon the ground in submission. That's what that, it's it's, it's an ancient way, Near Eastern way of, of, of in the throwing down of the cloaks, it's a submission to the ruler who is coming. Now, think with me, these are not people, by the way with closets and wardrobes full of garments. Throwing down that cloak upon the ground, the idea being that we don't believe that even the hooves of the steed of our king deserve to be dirtied and soiled. So we're throwing our cloaks down upon the ground that that he might ride in in this way. They throw the cloaks on the ground, their, their cries, loud, and again, as I said, public, uh, the, the cutting down of the, of the palm trees, the cries, you see this in, in verse uh, 9, again, uh, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Hosanna is both this prayer and praise, Son of David, this is this messianic king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, they are, they're going crazy. Uh, This is a a loud, exuberant celebration of the deliverance of the Lord and anticipation and expectation that Jesus is that deliverer. But delivering them from what? Now, that's where we get into a lair. Because despite... The joyful acclamation, we see a strong element of flawed understanding here. Those palms by, uh, well, let me go back to the Hosanna. The cry of Hosanna by this point in in Israel's history is not just a prayer in praise. It's something of a nationalistic cry about the nation. The palms were a patriotic symbol. This is like a ticker tape parade. In, in, in some respects. What's going on here is, in the complexities of, of, of what's transpiring, is that they are celebrating, yes, the deliverer that God has provided 
with the assumption that he has come but to, but as a warrior king to deliver them from the shackles of Roman oppression. That's all they see ultimately Jesus as being. And that's the, that's the, the, the sense in what they have an understanding of what they need to be freed from and what he has come to, to do. We get an, a sense of that element, a flawed, limited understanding just in, in the conversation going on there within the city of Jerusalem, right? Who is this? And what's the answer? Well, he's the prophet. Yeah. And? It's true, but not true enough. This is the divine son of God. That's who this is. That's who this is. There's a flawed, limited understanding. They have a truncated, abbreviated, small-sized understanding of their need. And they're in an abbreviated, truncated, small understanding of who Jesus is and what it is he has come to be and, and to do. And, and that, that is what, as we see then, leads to this conflict of agendas. Think back to some of your family outings, vacations, trips, whatever. Whether children, adults, adults and the children, and, and you have all these varying ideas and, and preconceived plans and priorities as to what this time is supposed to be and conflicting agendas. And where does that take you by the weekend or week's end? Are you ready for another weekend? Are you ready for another week to get? No, it's, it's led you a lot of stress, a lot of disillusionment, and perhaps even a solemn swearing, I'm never doing anything with these people again. Transpose that over to the dynamics going on here. The conflict of agendas. This is why the crowds on Sunday are shouting, Hosanna, and by Friday, they are shouting, crucify him. Because he's not giving them what they want. And we need to recognize that we do the very same thing and suffer from the very same struggle. And having too small a view of our need, and therein too small a view of Jesus and what he is bound and determined to do in our lives. It goes like this with all of us. I'm not interested in your saving me from my sin. Just save me from my circumstances. Right? I don't need to be changed. They do. Or even worse, I'm really not interested in my holiness. I just want my happiness back. Now give it to me. It's a conflict of agendas because of a truncated, abbreviated view of our need who Jesus is, too small a view of, of, of our Savior. And praise God, he is not limited to our expectations and demands. 
He is bound and determined to do whatever it takes to save us to the fullest, to the uttermost. The king has come. Oh, that we would learn to live under his reign. As I said earlier, this Palm Sunday, Jesus comes to the point of of no return. There's now no going back because we know Caesar, the Roman Caesar, will allow no rivals, none whatsoever. And that's the way rulers work. That's just the way rulers work. They will brook no rivals, no competition. I was reminded of that in this crazy news article I came across just a few days ago. It's short, but I do want to read it to you. Burger King, yeah, that's right, I know. Burger King appears to be eyeing more than just business expansion. By the way, the, the, title, the, name, the title of the article is Burger King Angers Royals. Just to, not, not the royals over there. I mean like uh, royal figures. Um, okay, so Burger King appears to be eyeing more than just business expansion. The fast food giant has launched a mock online vote titled Who is the King? that pits its fictional royal brand name against Belgium's King Philip ahead of the company's first Burger King restaurant in the Western Europe country. Two kings, one single crown, who shall reign, it asks. Unfortunately for the advertising campaign, as playful as it may be, it's reportedly broiled more than burgers. A spokesman for Belgium's royal family told the BBC that they have reached out to Burger King to express their disapproval of the advertisement, which features a cartoon image of King Philip. Now, obviously, this is really kind of ridiculous. The Belgium royal family is not threatened in the least by this. They're not worried that Burger King is going to start a rebellion or insurrection in the streets. They're not threatened. They're just peeved. They've just been disrespected. But understand, Caesar would not have taken it that way. The Roman Caesar, if he gets a whiff of rebellion or insurrection, it is going to be put down and put down brutally, and there was ample precedent for that. Ample precedent for this very thing, because there can be only one king. Let me end with this question. Is he your king? There can only be one. It will not work to give your life to something and him. That will not work. He is the one true king. Is he yours? Is your life governed by his rule? Is your strength empowered by his spirit? Is the purpose of your days his glory? Is he your king? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you put us there? Would you put us there that day amidst the crowds? Help us to see you riding down that hill into the city to the shouts and acclamation of the people. You have a right. You have a right to impress anything into your service, including us. 
And we are so glad to know that this ruler comes in peace. Oh, that you would help us. We, we certainly do have deep, profound longings within our hearts for that peace. But oh, would you help us to see that you're the only one that can provide it. Oh, would you help us to recognize the significance of this moment and connect the dots that we would be assured such that our worries, our anxieties, our fears would just find themselves being expelled, forced out by a confidence in you because there's no room. There's no room for the two at the same time, confidence in you and worry about our days. And would you help us to hear the crowds and the layers of their cries and to know that we ourselves are guilty of the same thing. Help us to trust your purposes, your higher, greater, better purposes, that our agenda would be more in line with yours. Oh, would you help us to learn what it means to live under your reign. King Jesus, amen.